Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 31 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. As uh, longtime listeners know, we start off every week with a little bit of a news roundup. Um, Michelle, what have you been following this week? Yeah, so um, as everyone probably knows by now, the Philippines has been inundated with all sorts of calamity since Typhoon Haiyan hit. A um, lot of different issues bound up in that disaster, as with many of these awful natural catastrophes these days. Um, there's a very strong um, human-made element to the chaos that's unfolding there. Relief convoys have not been, uh, have just started trickling through. Um, people are not getting the aid where they need it. And government institutions, uh, for a variety of reasons, have uh, either suffered severe damage themselves and are unable to deliver the help or for whatever reason just aren't coming through. And as with many things uh, requiring international aid, um, that is only starting to get off the ground now. I've been following some of the work that uh, the Filipino diaspora has been doing in response to Typhoon Haiyan. Um, as you may know, there's a very, very long and rich history of uh, labor migration to the United States from the Philippines. And one of the areas in the workforce with the greatest uh, Filipino presence is, is the healthcare field. And there are many, many Filipino nurses in the U.S. right now, as well as around the world. I, I guess you could say nurses and other healthcare workers are, are some of the Philippines' biggest exports in a way. Um, and a lot of those workers are now mobilizing in their communities and they're reaching out to others in the healthcare field. And uh, I've been talking to um, some of the labor groups in the nursing field, and they have been uh, moving to deploy some of their personnel as well as to. Um, work with Filipino nurses who are there on the ground now to deliver first aid, as well as, um, you know, sort of long-term chronic care in the aftermath of the disaster. And uh, the National Nurses United Union, which is part of California Nurses Association, they have reported that um, they now have about 500 RNs in their network who responded to an immediate call for help. Um, they're gathering assessments and other information and getting ready to deploy on the ground there. And um, what's really interesting here is that there's such a strong network of, um, a global network really, of healthcare workers and especially of nurses. And a lot of the Filipino nurses uh, here in the United States are getting ready to uh, go back and to help their communities. And I think it raises a lot of interesting labor issues about what uh, what diaspora means uh, to the labor movement. Um, some of the earliest labor uprisings here in the United States were led by uh, Filipino farm workers, and um, they, they've always been a very strong voice for immigrants on the U.S. side. And now you actually see many Filipino immigrants taking those contributions back to their home communities. Um, and in many ways, you know, the situation is the same in terms of just people um, leaving uh, the Philippines to seek sort of better opportunities abroad. Um, the healthcare infrastructure in the Philippines suffers in part because of this and in part, you know, the, the, it's a symptom that, that so many nurses are, are leaving, but it's also part of a global brain drain that you see in the global south a lot. So as places like the Philippines are increasingly under siege from, um, you know, pollution, climate change, and all these other uh, calamitous, um, disastrous elements, um, you know, some of these global networks are going to be becoming more and more important. And uh, I just wanted to highlight the fact that um, there are international efforts that are in some ways moving faster than, you know, the, uh, the Red Cross and these other huge, massive humanitarian organizations. Um, they don't have the same kinds of contacts. They don't have the same connections with the indigenous healthcare infrastructure there. So I spoke to uh, Bonnie Castillo, and she's the Registered Nurse Response Network director, and she talked about some of the challenges of getting nurses on the ground there and doing this kind of solidarity work. It requires not just an, an impulse to help and equipment, but also just sensitivity to what the local needs are, and um, also a kind of cultural sensitivity to the kind of, um, you know, specific interest that the labor force down there has. Um, you know, these nurses are, are uh, you know, very experienced and they know better than anyone else um, what their communities need. And so when international aid workers come in, especially in an area like health, it's really important for a lot of these aid efforts to um, to have kind of like a, a solidarity mentality. And I think labor does that in a way that a lot of these other ad hoc volunteer 
cores, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes fail to do. And I think we saw that in the aftermath of Haiti, a lot of the the indigenous healthcare workers there felt pretty disenfranchised. And now uh, we're going to go to Bonnie Castillo to talk about some of the lessons learned from previous efforts and what the nurses are planning on doing in the Philippines. So the first thing that we did was we alerted, you know, all our, our members. And we do have a very broad network, both in uh, NNU and the RNRN network. So we have a base of volunteers, including some that have already participated in disaster relief efforts, both uh, domestically and internationally. And so we just, within, you know, not even 24 hours, about 500 nurses have volunteered to go once we've identified an, uh, an area where we can sort of set up to do ongoing relief. But right now, there's a lot of heavy-duty sort of search and rescue efforts going on right now, and transportation and communications are down. So um, it, what we uh, believe is that where folks are migrating and or being evacuated to is probably uh, places where we'll be able to set up ongoing deployments. So we're working with uh, different groups there, some, both neighbor groups and some community groups. And, uh, you know, like I said, we uh, we have a very large network of Filipino nurses um, working here in the state and that have ongoing communication with family and some of their contacts there on the ground right now as well. You know, and I think for us what we know is right after sort of the more heavy-duty search and rescue and once they, you know, identify, you know, the survivors and evacuate them, that's when the, the long-term need is going to arise uh, where direct nursing care is going to be really critical to getting people back to their previous health. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of other work that's going to have to be done in terms of reestablishing housing, healthcare infrastructure, all of that. But that's going to be, you know, that's going to be months and probably years. So, uh, but I think what's important for us right now is to establish those relationships so that we can continue to have that ongoing relationship and be able to fill those needs that are so critical. For our nurses, you know, we have nurses that work in, you know, every single, I mean, what we do is we sort of match the, the skill set with the request. So often there's a lot of chronic um, need in terms of chronic existing health conditions, seniors, um, often pediatrics, um, maternal child, all of that. But right now we're just we're trying to sort of monitor how the, the more heavy-duty search and rescue efforts are, are going and so that we can determine where it's sort of safe for us to go where we're not going to be overburdening an already completely frayed infrastructure. And that was Bonnie Castillo. She's director of the uh, Registered Nurse Response Network. Um, I also spoke with a Filipina nurse named Suzette Narcota, and she discussed um, having a sort of a great feeling uh, of solidarity with some of the Filipina nurses who are still back in the Philippines. Uh, and she noted that a lot of the labor issues there are, are even more acute than they are for nurses here in the United States. It's a far worse situation in terms of job opportunities and low wages. And, you know, just a, a lack of infrastructure means that um, there are many nurses who are fully trained and they're impeccably trained there, but they just can't find jobs and they're resorting to basically working for free for um, a lot of healthcare organizations there because they simply, um, you know, there, there, there isn't enough money or there, there aren't enough jobs that pay people a living wage. And so one of the other things that they're doing as a, as a labor movement is helping their labor unions grow stronger over there and, um, you know, giving them sort of the institutional backbone or advising them on how to build that so that they can mobilize um, the way that uh, nurses have so successfully done in many efforts here in the United States. So in other news, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments this week for a, a sort of an interesting little labor case that hasn't gotten a whole lot of notice in the labor press, as Michelle pointed out. Workers at U.S. Steel's Gary Works are asking their employer to pay them for the time it takes to get dressed for work every day. And by getting dressed, they mean putting on jackets, work gloves, Kevlar sleeves, steel-toed boots, eye protection, earplugs, and hard hats. So this is not just, you know, you get dressed at home before you go to the office. It's actually what you have to wear to be safe on your job. And so, you know, there's been a couple of pieces. There was a piece at The Atlantic sort of talking about the the Supreme Court dis- debating what are clothes, which is, is sort of charming, but the real question is not what are clothes, but rather what is work time? And how much of your time 
outside of the office, your job can actually colonize. And while we're seeing this as a really big question in terms of sort of white collar work and office work and the kind of thing that will colonize your life on your smartphone and on your whatever, you may not be able to bring the steelworks home with you. But the fact that you are spending a good chunk of your morning putting on a whole bunch of protective gear before you go to the workplace, then you have to travel to the workplace. The workers are saying that this is part of their workday, which doesn't seem, I guess, to me to be an unreasonable uh, argument to make. But they certainly wouldn't be uh, putting on that gear for leisure. Exactly. Um, But I, I, I do think that this sets up a lot of interesting questions about then what is work time, right? That if we're still talking about people being paid by the hour, then what is an hour of your work? How much of your work is going to just bleed into your own day without you getting paid for it? In any case, they, the Supreme Court will be ruling on this at some point. Um, we will no doubt get to read a nice long decision and maybe some dissent about what clothes are. The real question will be what they decide about workers' right to their own time. Building on that issue of um, you know workers in precarious situations and needing some of the safety gear and having that really be respected as part of the job, uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, is uh, pushing forward a proposal for new rules that would force public disclosures of workplace injuries and uh, and illnesses. Um, and these would be uh, basically compelling um, large companies to file electronic reports of illnesses and uh, injuries on the job and um, making them available to the public. And basically, this is not really proposing anything beyond just giving information to the public. I mean, this is information that they already catalog, right, as a matter of law. They have to document these things. Um, In many cases, employees themselves can access this information and and track it and um, and assess it um, when making their own conclusions about how safe their workplace is. And um, and OSHA decided uh, quite reasonably that, uh, you know, because these workplaces are, are in our communities, we deserve the right to know as members of the public, right, uh, how they're treating workers and, and how workers are faring on the job. And, of course, you know, you can imagine the uproar that <laughs> erupted immediately from the ranks of the you know, Chamber of Commerce and all these business owners who believe that uh, it, it was too much exposure for the businesses, right? And that was too big of a risk. And of course, it's curious that the only time that, uh, you know, U.S. Chamber of Commerce ever seems to chime in on the whole privacy debate is when uh-huh. it comes to their right to not disclosing information about how they're putting their workers' lives at risk, you know, because right. that's obviously their prerogative to keep it out of um, or possibly out of the public customers view. customers' lives at risk, right? Right. We're talking sure. about workplace illnesses. And oh, we're yes. Talking about yes. People who are handling your food, perhaps. Yes. And um, I mean, and, and you know, the fact that workers are also community members and the fact that they are bringing maybe contaminated clothing home with them or uh, bringing back illnesses that may in turn uh, harm their, you know, their children and their loved ones. I mean, that that is all very vital to know. I mean, we already have um, toxic release reports, right, um, mm-hmm. as, as a matter of environmental regulation. So why not, why not, um, you know, these, these workplace injury and illness reports? But... Um, there has been fierce pushback. You know, the the proposal is still pending, and it it remains to be seen uh, what's going to be done with that. But, you know, it is one thing to keep on your radar as members of the public that, sure, it it doesn't necessarily mean that employers are being negligent or or harmful every time a, a worker gets injured on the job. But just think about, you know, what motivations companies would have for wanting to hide this information from the public. And then that should pique your curiosity about, you know, why why shouldn't we have this information available to us? Um, you know, it, it is ultimately, um, these are all uh, risks that impact on the entire community. Um, it doesn't just happen within an isolated workplace. And those workers, as well as their communities, have a right to know. So, Somewhat related to that, I have a story that is in the works that will be out probably sometime next week um, about one particular worker or one worker and several of his colleagues who are interested in knowing the conditions of some of the other workers within their business. Um, I spoke to Alex Shalom, who is a teller at Bank of America here in New York City, and he is a little concerned about Bank of America's newest, quote, innovation, 
which is it's a little lower tech than some of the really high-end, high-speed derivatives trading innovations that some of these banks have come up with. But it is nevertheless a technological advance, or so the bank is claiming, that they're going to have or they do already have, rather, at a, at a branch in New York, instead of actual human tellers that are sitting behind glass at the bank, they have a video screen attached to your ATM, and they have tellers in a call center somewhere who are going to be taking the place of those tellers, tellers here in New York. I spoke to Alex because he has a petition up on coworker.org about this. He's trying to organize his colleagues around the issue of these video tellers who are, as we've noted, in a call center, mostly it seems right now in Florida and Delaware, who are being paid, according to Alex, who says he got this from his manager, they're being paid what the standard rate is for tellers in those places, which is about $11 an hour, which is much less than tellers make in New York City. So essentially what happens here is that you get bank tellers, which is, you know, it's a entry-level job at the bank. It's not a one with a whole lot of upward mobility, but it is, as Alex pointed out, a, a decently paid entry-level service job. And eliminating those and replacing them with somebody on a video screen is going to have the effect of essentially getting fewer workers for less money to do more work, because instead of you know, taking their time with each customer, they're encouraged in the sort of call center speed up mentality to just take call after call after call after call after call. And one could be from New York, and maybe one will be from Charlotte, and maybe one will be from Arizona. I don't really know where this actually stops. Right. So I will have more on this story coming up soon, but I thought I would uh, give you a little teaser of it this week. Well, it's just really interesting about the whole depersonalization of financial services in general. Mm -hmm. and um, And I know, I mean... Coming from the immigrant community here in uh, in New York, some of the Chinatown community banks. I mean, mm -hmm. the the ethnic banking system has been a really vital pillar in uh, in a lot of the communities here in the in New yeah. York in terms of just forming sort of like a cohesive kind of self sustaining economy. And the yeah. fact that so many of those jobs are now either being lost to like you know the uh, the robotic box that is the ATM machine that right. is ubiquitous all across the city. I mean, I, I haven't seen an actual teller in like years. Right yeah. in, in New York, but the fact that the few tellers who are left are now, you know, seeing their jobs being evaporating and being shipped off to a distant call center in a state with lower tax rates, lower tax you know, rates and lower wages. Yeah, it's not just about jobs being interchangeable, but it's also about you know what is lost to that community. Mm -hmm. There's so many underbanked communities across the country, and just you know the idea that these huge banks take up so much of the financial services industry and can so easily just cut off their ties to um, yeah. you know. A, 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 an urban community is very disturbing. Yeah, it's really, it really is, you know, again, it seems like the, the issue with the banks is that they want to serve, sell more services to a smaller population, right? So they want more high-end services. I mean, this is actually sort of reminiscent of the healthcare field, and this could we could digress on this for the entire day, which we won't because we have other fun things to start right. talking about. But it is interesting that, you know, more and more of these, this is what we get in this kind of an economy where you have a mass of low-wage workers and you have services becoming in increasingly sort of boutique for the people who can afford them. Right. And the ones who can't afford them just go into more debt, which is convenient for Bank of America, isn't it? Yes. Speaking of all of those things, yeah. these are sort of related topics to today's discussion, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we, we're, we're going to move from banks to, um, you know, the ivory tower now. But this this whole issue of the de-skilling of labor, the dehumanization of labor, you wouldn't expect to hear a lot about that on a college campus. But lo and behold, um, it is slowly encroaching upon uh, academia. So um, this this trend of sort of depersonalizing labor in the academic workforce is something that's been sort of percolating in the headlines a lot, sometimes in subtle ways. Uh, I think it, you might have seen some of the news coming out about some of the more high-profile uh, controversies involving university faculty and free speech. For instance, you know, uh, professors who've been criticized for uh, saying snarky things about the GOP, sometimes in a classroom setting, sometimes outside of a classroom setting. 
upsetting. Uh, but, you know, they're overheard and uh, their words are then, you know, tweeted out on the right-wing blogosphere and social media sphere. And, uh, you know, it goes viral. And then Hannity sort of sicks his, you know, millions of fans on these people. And um, it becomes sort of a very uh, interesting springboard for a number of right-wing witch hunts, which, um, in addition to being profoundly sort of anti-intellectual at their core, um, really love to hold up the liberal academic as the great boogeyman uh, that that all of America, you know, real Americans should be afraid of, right? So let's attack that that ivory tower. And look, you know, speaking as as someone from the inside, um, I, I love really to dismiss. Yeah. We're recording in the CUNY Graduate we're, Center, right? right we're now. in the belly of the beast right now. And you know, full disclosure, me being uh, a, a, a student as well as a, um, a part of the um, faculty at the Graduate Center. It's interesting because there are, uh, at the same time, you know, grassroots activist movements coming from within academia who are trying to make the system more democratic. Um, at the same time, the other places, you know, the other forces in our society that kind of like to shout down academics, you know, they claim to be the anti-establishment ones, but in reality, they are propping up a different kind of establishment and they're often going after the progressive voices on campus. I interviewed recently Rachel Slocum, and she's a professor of geography in the University of Wisconsin system, and she uh, recently sent out a nonchalant, you know, short little email memo, sort of griping about the federal government shutdown and how the GOP was kind of inadvertently responsible for the shuttering of the census.gov website. And that is... Inadvertently, we mean advertently. Right. And so, um, but, you know, I can't say that because, uh, because you know, I, I might meet the same fate as Rachel Slocum, which was uh, one of her students, uh, you know, got this email, decided to uh, publicize it. It was picked up by a lot of right-wing media outlets, and she sort of became, uh, you know, the target of a lot of smear. Um, and uh, this actually prompted a kind of a... A shakeup at the in her campus administration, and uh, the the um, the head of the administration actually had to sort of uh, issue a statement, a tersely worded statement, distancing himself from uh, Professor Slocum's comments, as if she had just you know a, a, like denied the Holocaust or something. But no, she had merely just said something not so nice about the GOP. and Not so nice and, in fact, accurate. Yes, right. And those twin factors are really what will get you um, in trouble with the right wing. So uh, being both honest and uh, truthful... Uh, as well as right, you know, um, that that can really get you in trouble. So anyway, um, so, uh, you know, th- there was a whole fallout after that. And it just raised a lot of interesting issues about, you know, what is the meaning of academic speech anymore? Is everything that goes on in the campus part of the public sphere? And actually, I, I really think that it should be, right? I, I think that there should be a, a very open debate on campus and I feel like people who uh, disagree with Professor Slocum should be free to air those views. And I feel like there should be, you know, let a, let 10,000 flowers bloom on all com- college campuses, especially public university campuses like the University of Wisconsin. What I have a problem with is uh, when the professors and the faculty members lack robust labor protections that allow them to rebut such arguments, you know, um, and uh, allow them to stand up for themselves. If they're just going to be badgered and have to take it because <laughs> they're not tenured and they know that they could lose their job if they get on the bad side of the administration, well, that's that's not really a level playing field. That's not really a free marketplace of ideas, as the right wing likes to say. So yeah. um, I think, you know, we really need to reconsider if we are going to have uh, a, an academia that fully embraces the information age and the digital age and um, allows professors words to be tweeted out to millions of people around the world, then we should, on the flip side, have professors um, have the labor protections they need and the job security they need to know that they can speak freely in defense of themselves, in defense of their colleagues, in defense of true things and ideas, because that's (laughs) what the pursuit of truth should be about. Sad to say that we still need to have, like, basic conversations about this. Well, I mean, and we... We need to have them even more so now than ever because, you know, the idea once upon a time that you would get a job in academia on your credentials such as they were and you would be on track to get tenure and you would get tenure based on your publication and your teaching record more or less. And then once you were tenured, you could essentially have some freedom to explore your 
research and also run your big mouth essentially as much as you wanted to and that model is slowly disappearing so you know we're sitting here at cuny which still has some wonderful amazing brilliant tenured faculty but coming up more and more and more of the classes are being taught by adjuncts and by graduate assistants people like michelle who don't have any such protections Mm -hmm. like that so friend of the podcast, Karen Gregory, who is um, also at CUNY as an adjunct, got some attention for some language on her syllabus that explained that she was an adjunct and what the working conditions of the adjuncts were here at CUNY and asking her students to be aware, first of all, to not call her a professor because she was not, in fact, a professor, and to be aware that things like meeting with students outside of class time were things she was actually not getting paid for. Which goes back to the whole idea of uh, what is time, what is work, and what is time. Right, exactly. And, and you know, this is, I'm working on a uh, discussion that I'm going to be, well, by the time you hear this podcast, it will have already happened, a talk that I'm doing at, at um, Boston University on unpaid labor and gender. And because it's been noted by many people before that women professors tend to spend more time mentoring students, helping students, meeting with students that that kind of work is gendered and because that kind of work is gendered it's seen as something again you do out of the kindness of your heart and not because it's part of your job right. because so. you can't actually care about your job like those things never oh, right well right and the the whole question of i mean the whole question of what is work in an academic context and what is the part of your job that you're doing because you love it and what the, what is the part of your job that you should sort of be grateful f- that you have because it's an exciting special opportunity that you have to do it. Exactly. Just like writing for free, which is something that many academics do. Um, right. I mean, that's right. That's part of the whole model of, of getting to tenure in the first place, right? Is that you will publish things and you will not get paid for them, but your university is supposedly paying you to do this. Except again, if you're an adjunct, you're still expected to do that publication so that you can get a job maybe someday that's a real job and not a $3,000 a semester adjunct position. Right. I mean, it's basically like piecework, right? I mean, it's, it's academic it piecework. It's academic piecework, except you know, in a large, in large part, it's academic piecework that you're not even getting paid for most of the pieces. Right. I mean, speaking as someone who's who's both taught and been a student, it, it really is. Um, there's like an ethical burden involved, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's hard not to feel somewhat resentful over the fact that the the burden is being placed on you to negotiate this line, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's up to me to say no to a student because I, you know, I can't afford this time with them. You know, I, I mean, it's same same as the the kind of um, ethical qualms that domestic workers face, right? When they're being forced to care for children because the parents come home late and well, you know, how, how can you say no to a kid, right? right? You know, and these are all sort of minor taxes that gently sort of wear <laughs> on one's psyche. Um, and uh, and that, that needs to be, I think, contemplated when we discuss sort of intellectual labor, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there are so many different um, uh, issues. But, uh, you know, one of the things that this all goes back to is just, you know, academic and intellectual work being disrespected, right? Yeah. Um, disrespected because maybe it just doesn't yield tangible enough material benefits, for uh, whoever is expected to be consuming it. Right. And this goes back to the increasing privatization of the academy, right? Um, I, I've reported a bit in recent weeks on uh, the advent of MOOCs, you know, massive oh, online open courses which um, allow allegedly uh, students to get low cost education on a massive scale using only uh, online information and all the uh, tutorials being digitized and your teaching assistants being digitized and all this stuff, and, and it's supposed to be seen as kind of like a technological sort of silver bullet to some of the cost issues facing academia. But, you know, what are the hidden costs of that, right? Not only is the technology itself very expensive, but just on a, on a basic level, you know, who is being priced out of this situation in which only people who are internet savvy, you know, have access to those opportunities, and who is being priced out on the faculty side, right? Mm-hmm. Are we being treated as robots, um, right? And, you yeah. know, widget churners or are we there to actually you know provide a personal you know impart intellectual wisdom to people yeah it's actually funny i was just realizing that the mooks and the uh, video tellers are uh, 
somewhat similar, right? And that you're, the idea suddenly is that you will squeeze more service for more people in more places out of one person doing the same job. Right. Or even not a real person, right? It's like, it's, yeah. it's like virtually a max headroom when you're, when you're a MOOC. And so, I mean, and, and, you know, it, you might say, oh, well, you know, it's all the same anyway, because you're just learning what you need to learn. It's more efficient this way. But sometimes what is often calculated as inefficiency is actually just the human element of labor that is so often devalued, right? I mean, you may get um, a more sort of one-size-fits-all model for uh, an online course in programming, for instance, but you're also losing faculty members who can teach people how to be good critical thinkers, right, or how to interact personally um, in in a creative way with their students, right? Those are things that that don't get scored, right, on the Scantron, but they're there nonetheless. And uh, what many of these privatizers want is is an academia that that has less critical thinking because often that critical thinking is turned against the administration. <laughs> or into being critical of people causing government shutdowns for yeah. the hell of it. No, I mean, it's interesting. We've talked on this podcast, and I've written quite a bit before about the way that standardized testing in K-12 through education really takes out the, the care portion of the job, which is ironic because teaching was originally sort of set up as work for women. It was set up that way because women would work for less money back in the day when women weren't considered real workers. But it was sold as, well, you know, women are just naturally more caring and women are naturally better at doing this, which is why, as I said, women professors still end up spending more time with their students and doing more of that caring element. But in any case, men, women, people who identify as neither of those things um, are all being expected to do a part of this job for free or that part of the job is just made completely invisible and in the case of things like MOOCs just written out of the equation entirely because it doesn't provide a certain kind of tangible value or you know going back to um, Judy Sheridan Gonzalez who one of the nurses that I we heard a short clip from a couple of weeks ago saying that in the hospital they no longer want to pay people for non-productive time and what non-productive time is in the hospital is I mean what are you producing in the hospital what are you producing in the university are you producing a degree are you producing a an educated person or an educated class of people are you producing a dialogue and again as Michelle said critical thought I mean what what is the product that right. we are trying to produce? And are you bringing people, are you bringing faculty members out into the public, right? I mean, this is um, what Rachel Slocum did, essentially, was mm-hmm. kind of engage her students on a level that was relevant to the outside world, right? right? And and that came back to her, right? And and I ha- actually have no problem with the fact that, you know, she was uh, politically engaged and that yeah. there was, um, you know, some backlash to what she said, I think. Uh, and, and from speaking with her, I know that she actually values that kind of feedback as well. Um, um, the issue is that when she is put in a position where she has no means of defending what she said, right. then this is an issue. So, yeah, but I think what you said about the sort of the, the product of academic labor is really important because um, right now, um, you know, you hear a lot of this debate about the cost of college, right? Oh, you know, the, a degree isn't worth, you know, isn't worth the tuition that you put in anymore. Mm-hmm. We need to make college pay off for young grad students. And on the one hand, yes, that is a perfectly fair argument, right? There's no reason why young people should be going into massive amounts of debt um, and not coming out with a job at the other end of it, right? Sure. Um, but but, you know, we also need to keep uh, our mind on some of the non-material aspects of a college education, right? Uh, I mean, my college degree is is not um, is not worth more uh, simply because you know I'm making uh, like X amount more per year or whatever, right. or, or I'm placed in a job uh, within six months of my graduation. Right. Um, that that do- that is very helpful for me to survive, and that's vital, <laughs> uh, right? But uh, yeah. but that doesn't that that's not what college is. Is all about, right? I mean, I'd like to think that there's a little bit more to uh, learning in your post-secondary years than yeah. just getting a job. Yeah. So, of course, as we talk about labor on this podcast, we like to tell you not just how 
lousy things are, but what people are trying to do to make it better. I was actually struck by um, a protest that I heard about last week, actually on Halloween, that the Graduate Student Employees Union and the Contingent Concerns Committee of the United University Professors at SUNY Albany, see, we're finally talking about something other than CUNY, um, <laughs> as we moved on to the state universities. <laughs> Anyway, they held a grade-in protest as part of an effort to make their labor visible. So as we were just talking about the way that certain kinds of labor get made invisible or just written out of the process of academic labor entirely when you're talking about adjuncts who are getting paid, um, in this case, $3,700 per course, which is $3,700 over the course of a semester, coming up with interesting ways to make that work visible is, I think, a really effective way to call attention to what is not being, what we're not being compensated for, right? So... Uh, what, what, what did this grade-in consist of? So the adjuncts and the graduate student employees got together and they went into, they went into the administration building and set up shop to grade papers right there and do their research right in front of the administration. So here you go. Here is our labor. It is visible. You right. have to look at it whether you like it or not. Of course, I mean, the next step I would love to see is a, a meet with students in, right? Right. Is it, let's demonstrate this particular part of... Uh, right. But it's an interesting sort of analog to the uh, student uh, test strike, right? I mean, you yeah. can the, the, the refusal to take the test and the refusal to participate in the grading without adequate compensation, yeah. right? Um, this idea of... Uh, well, I mean, in this case, it was just sort of a showing resistance, showing defiance of right. that system um yeah it's important um and, and showing the system right showing right. the work that goes into doing this that is not just the time that you spend in the classroom but is the time that you spend at home grading papers until you know 11 o'clock at night or whenever it is that you do it i'm not a late night worker maybe some of you are <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, some of us are forced to be, right? Yeah. And, and, and uh, I'm an early morning worker instead. Right, the, right. I think it's important that uh, we bring things like the sit-in back to the college campus because, you know, that, that is about so, yeah, putting bodies history. on the line, right? right. And, um, and it's so easy in today's digital world to just think about ourselves as these Borgs floating around in the digital ether. But, um, but really, it, even professors, you know, they are flesh and blood people. Take yeah. it from me. Yeah. But. Michelle is, in fact, flesh and blood. I can vouch for that. Right. Yeah. And I, once upon a time, was, as I mentioned on this podcast before, a uh, unionized graduate student employee myself as a teaching assistant at Temple University when I was doing my journalism degree. And, yeah, that was a, a union that, once again, they had fought for and they had gone through. It was relatively quiet my two years, mostly because they had actually just landed a pretty solid new contract that got us a pretty decent cost of living wage increase every year for yeah. our, you know. Right. And that also shows, I think, the um, the division, unfortunately, between uh, some of the, you know, unionized full-time faculty and the situation that many adjuncts find themselves in. Right. You, you might have heard about... Um, you know, the, the adjunct uh, French professor, the 80, 80-something-year-old woman who basically perished uh, in solitude. Um, you know, she was sick, she was poor, and, and she had been an adjunct for over 20 years, right? Yeah. And uh, it is at a Catholic university, and I think it was du du um, Duquesne okay. University. And the idea there was that uh, you know she was she was basically just sort of marginalized as even though she had been a dedicated teacher her entire life, and um, she ended up dying in penury. And that's kind of uh, you know if, if that's the way academic labor is treated, I mean that that's sort of an interesting barometer in terms of how labor is valued throughout the workforce. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there are uh, buttons that say I am Margaret Mary. I believe downstairs or down the hall in the uh, graduate student lounge on this floor right there <laughs> that 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 was her name and that was it's been sort of a rallying cry for people who are in this position right because yeah as, as we mentioned debt earlier one of the things that uh, many graduate students have in common is a lot of debt or you know in the case of adjuncts people who graduated with PhDs who don't have full-time jobs but who certainly have a heck of a lot of debt and the real costs that you undertake to get to a certain degree of education that you think is going to pay the bills. And we're finding out across the board in this country right now and in the world right now, I guess, that that just doesn't really hold true anymore. 
And just going back to the issue of all this fancy schmance technology being deployed on college campuses, I, I just wanted to you know, point out that um, recently Inside Higher Ed reported on a social media effort, so that is very technology savvy, of, of some um, pretty discerning uh, university faculty. And they're, uh, they started a project called Classrooms of Shame. And it's a sort of an online shaming project. But, you know, instead of... Um, cheating spouses, uh, they're, they're shaming their university facilities on campus, showing pictures of, quote, leaky ceilings, some with makeshift fixes, such as sheet of plastic funneling water into a trash can at what's labeled as a liberal arts college. So, I mean, the, the idea here is that, uh, I mean, sure, like, you know, public universities, many of them are under-resourced in many ways, you know, and, um, and th- these universities are, are no doubt uh, struggling as, as part of the public sector. But the idea that the same, you know, university system would be pushing, uh, you know, privatized digital education MOOC packets um, while, you know, neglecting the fact that their classrooms are leaky and their faucets don't work and the students and the faculty don't have, you know, basic, very basic equipment. Um, that's really telling about where resources are being invested. So, I mean, that's that's another issue. Uh, in addition to investing in faculty, um, a lot of these issues with university systems might be resolved if they just did more with um, the brick-and-mortar infrastructure that already exists. And unfortunately, we seek silver bullets and things like, you know, online courses that exist in the cloud uh, rather than in people's communities. On that cheery note, <laughs> this is the time of the podcast that everybody knows as when we say, Arrgh. Arrgh. I wish I had written that. So this week I am dying in envy over Harold Meyerson's piece as part of a, a really impressive package over at the American Prospect about working in what they've called the age of anxiety. So Meyerson's piece is called The 40-Year Slump. It is the story of work in America between 1974 and the present. As you can imagine, it's kind of long. And we know we know a lot of this story, right? We've heard it many times before. Um, we've read it in various different versions. Quite a lot. But one of the things that I think he does very well in this piece is he talks about the history of the strike, the way workers struck through, you know, decades of American history in order to keep those wages high. And the swift decline of the strike in the 70s and certainly in the 80s after Reagan and the air traffic controllers. And alongside that, he talks about the shift to valuing a corporation's stock price above all else, including above, certainly above its workers, but even above what it actually produces, what it actually researches, what it actually invests in. And those two things go hand in hand. But what the conclusion that he draws from this piece is really sort of striking. It's he and I quote, the decline of the American job is ultimately the consequence of the decline of worker power, right? That this is a consequence of people having less power and control on the job. And as he says, this leads to a broader malaise and a broader actual, you know, actual pain that people are feeling in their lives because they don't have the economic power, but they also don't have many other forms of power. He writes, what has vanished over the past 40 years isn't just Americans' rising incomes, it's their sense of control over their lives. Mm-hmm. And the piece, it's also worth noting, is accompanied by oral histories of many workers who came of age and are working in this 40-year period. Everyone from doctors who are struggling to pay off their student loans to um, temp workers on the line at the Nissan factory, which we will be talking about more in the future on this podcast. Hint, hint. Right. And I think, you know, it's an interesting insight to just have that sort of long view of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, the 40-year stretch encompasses both of our lives, right? right? And I, for one, have grown up in an environment where precarious work has been sort of a fact of life for many Americans. But, it's been a fact of my life, certainly. Yeah. But, you know, people in our parents' generation or grandparents' generation, they still have memories of a time when, when work was still dignified, when you can get a blue-collar manufacturing job out of high school and have a decent living and be able to send your kids to college. And, and that institutional memory 
memory, that collective memory, is also what erodes when um, these types of jobs erode. And so, you know, we're losing a sense of history, right? Um, bound up in our ways of working, our, our sense of connection to our communities and our sense of continuity over the generations in terms of how we contribute to society. And if yeah. that's being lost, if we don't even have continuity from one day in the job to the next, right, if we're temp workers, yeah. then we're not going to have a sense of how it all fits together into one system and how different generations feed into the next in terms of, you know, am I, uh, the, the, the tax cuts that we get today, you know, what is that going to do to uh, people down, down the mm-hmm. line in the future? What yeah. is that going to do to our systems in terms of sustainability, right? So, you know, it's, it's just an interesting perspective to think about these things in 40-year chunks, as, as Harold Myers and likes to do, because, um, you know, this age of anxiety is bigger than we all are, um, and it will probably, unfortunately, outlive us. Ugh, we'll oh, sorry. Wait, we started on a happy note, and now I'm just taking us back. Well, come on. You, you've got Oh, all oh, right. So now we go back to uh, formerly incarcerated people. So that's another bright spot on everyone's, uh, you know, on, on everyone's horizon. But, yeah, my, my arg this week was um, Kai Wright, former uh, colleague and, and uh, a, a, who has done some great investigative work with, um, with the Nation Institute, has a piece in the Nation about um, – criminal background checks and what they do to people's job prospects once they are out of the system or once they think, right, that they are out of the system. So if you have an arrest record, right, um, you are obligated um, in, in some cases, in many cases by law, to disclose that information or it can wind up permanently on your record and anyone running a criminal background check on you using one of these many privatized services, right, that employers often rely on to screen applicants for jobs, they can just automatically screen you out on the basis of that background. Um, There are some protections. Uh, New York has, you know, fairly robust protections on the state level, you know, for certain kinds of confidentiality or at least giving prospective, you know, job seekers a chance to, you know, explain their circumstances to employers if they have a, a, a a conviction record. But the fact is that a, a lot of times employers just, you know, don't want to give these people the time of day, right? And um, it may in some cases be illegal. In some cases, it's just barely legal, right? But ultimately, if you're formally incarcerated, if you have an arrest, if you have a felony record, it could just be a drug charge, right? A probation charge. If that winds up permanently on your record, you're out of luck and you're really disempowered when you apply for a job, right? It's it's not, uh, you know, it's not up to you. That, that person can very easily turn you away, right? The, all the cards are in their hands. And often this this um, intersects very heavily with uh, a lot of the racial disparities, racial and class disparities that we see in the criminal justice system. And uh, Kai does an excellent job of mapping out uh, using handy infographics what this means in terms of numbers, right? How many people, uh, what proportion of the black population and, and, and the Latino population of this country is affected, especially young black men, right, who often for whatever reason find themselves entangled in the criminal justice system. In many cases, the driver is pot arrests, right? So just think about it. You know, like a pot arrest as a teen can set you on the path to being, uh, you know, having your economic prospects um, burdened for the rest of your life. Yeah. By, by this this blight that appears in your record. Can't and get a job, can't do anything else, so what right. are you going to do to make a living? Right, and that is one of the <laughs> biggest reasons for recidivism and something I've written about in terms of um, the, the incarceration aspect is um, for people who have been locked up for a number of years when they get out, right? Um, you know, one of the first things they need to do when they get out is get a stable, stable job, right? But how do you get a job? Well, you need experience and you need to have a clean record. Um, coming out of prison, you often have neither of them. Those things, right? Just on paper, you might fulfill your prospective boss's worst stereotype, right? Um, so often these people are relegated to jobs that don't pay living wage, you know, uh, jobs in the fast food industry. Um, and there's actually a huge loss of billions of dollars to the economy, right? I mean, we think about it as, oh, uh, uh, employers have the right to protect their businesses, right, by, by minimizing risk, by screening these people out. But the reality yeah. is whole communities are being uh, disempowered and having wealth drained from them because uh, people, even though they're technically free from prison, um, they, they are really imprisoned for the rest of their lives, right? They're in an economic prison of sorts um, because they simply are sort of shut out of the opportunities that many other people take for granted. And um, this is what, this is, I mean, this is the very definition of institutional racism, right? Um, and sadly, uh, it's wrapped up in this uh, sort of, you know, legalistic pretext of screening out people with criminal histories, right? But it, what, what in reality what's happening is 
that, you know, people who are really trying to do the best to start their lives over again are simply not given a second chance when we have Wall Street bankers who are committing crimes every single day. But they don't go to jail anyway. Right, right, right. Descent um, Magazine's Belabored Podcast, where we endeavor to bring you the world's most depressing news every week. Right. Tune in next week. <laughs> Tune in. Come back. If you're still here. We swear. Right. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the positive things about this issue, there aren't a lot of them, is that people are actually starting to fight these, right? That there have been these um, so-called ban-the-box campaigns in a number of places, in, in right. Connecticut, in Right. You know, in New York, where people are, are actively fighting to have that little checkbox that asks if you have been convicted of a felony right. taken off the application. Right. That, you know, you can at least give somebody the chance to get in the door and get an interview because you're much more likely to, you know, give somebody a chance if you look them in the eye and talk to them like they're a human and not just see them as one of, you know, 20 in a stack of applications right. in a rough economy where everybody is trying to get a job, even those low-wage jobs. Right. And, you know, the more competitive the job market is, the easier it is for employers to just find any excuse to screen Mm -hmm. you out. And often, you know, having an arrest record or whatever is the perfect excuse, right? Um, There are actually a number of of, uh, jobs where you're actually legally barred from holding those positions if you have, you know, a certain Mm -hmm. um, conviction record. Uh, You know, sometimes they're they're really ridiculous. Like, you know, like, um, you know, for for a while, I think, in, in New York, at least it was like, you couldn't be, you couldn't cut hair for a living, right? You couldn't get a barber's license for whatever reason. Right, because you might slit somebody's... <laughs> exactly. Sharp I, okay. objects, people. I, I mean, uh, but uh, <sighs> anyway. Uh, but of course, you know, going back to the systemic issue here, um, the fact is that the underlying factor is that we just incarcerate way, way too many people. The best way to keep people from being disenfranchised this way uh, with a criminal record is to keep people out of prison and to and to minimize uh, the use of the criminal justice system when dealing with things like, you know, drugs. Right, and and that's another aspect that is really vital in all this. I mean, uh, we don't often think of the war on drugs, right, as a labor issue, but it absolutely is in terms of what it does to the economy and in terms of how it warps our priorities in terms of where we invest yeah. our public resources. Yeah, we can look at state budgets and watch the lines for education say go down, and that is teachers' jobs among other things. And watch the lines for prisons go up. And while, you know, yes, you get a certain amount of jobs that are created by those prisons, you also get, well... More prisoners. (laughs) You get more prisons. Right. And that's... But, you know, I think the important thing to take away from all of this is that um, in Kai's story, too, it really comes out that the characters he elucidates, um, they're going on with their lives, right? Um, they're doing the best they can. And, you know, the, the their mere perseverance is in and of itself a testament to how hard people work, right, to set yeah. things straight. And, um, you know, that is something definitely to be admired. And so there is like a silver lining in this story, which is that human dignity still shines through, even though the system craps on you every day. Well, thank you for salvaging something, Michelle. Thank you for listening to all of our depressing conversations. We will endeavor to have some good news for you next week. We'll see what we can do about that. If you have any good news to share with us that we should talk about next week so that you are not depressed, please please, please tweet at us. Hashtag belabored. Send it to Descent. Send it to either of us. Send us your comments, things you would like explained, questions, suggestions, and please more cheerful story ideas. And... We will be back next week. Thank you, as always, to Natasha Lewis, our wonderful, wonderful producer, and to Descent Magazine for hosting us. And see you next week, everybody. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate to win the fight, hell no, we can't go. Our society has enslaved me, and it's crazy, because daily it gets hard.